Welcome to the Bethany Community Church Sermon Podcast. This ministry is intended to inspire you and help bring solutions to the challenges of life. Today's message is titled, Tired Inside, and is part of the Tired Hearts Sermon Series. For more information about other ministries here at Bethany Community Church, you can visit us at our website at bccma.org, or you could always send us an email at office at bccma.org. And now, here's Pastor Phil McCutcheon. Um, boy, I'm re- really excited about today's message because I, 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 we just did four sermons to kind of beat up the Christian type sermons. And uh, so today I want to give you a break. And we're going to go to Matthew 11, 28 in a, in a couple minutes. But we're talking about um, a tired heart. A tired heart. Katie Hermanson, University of California, health psychologist in the Department of Physical Medicine Rehabilitation, said this the other day. She said, we're tired. Being tired of being cooked up, tired of being careful, tired of being scared. This is a real challenge. There are no easy solutions. We know there are two kinds of stress that have long-term effects on our mental well-being and physical health. Intense stress and prolonged stress. We have both. We're tired at a very deep level. We're tired at a level that some of us haven't been tired before. Our minds, our souls, our hearts are weary. The word, the U-R in the word courage uh, is the Latin word heart. So if you have courage, it means you have an energetic, vibrant heart. If you're discouraged, it's when you have a weary heart. Your heart is tired. I'm calling today's message, and preach two messages. My, my hope is today will be more spiritual, next week more practical. How to get rest for your weary heart. Are things bad? It's actually worse than you think, really. It's worse than you think. That's bad. You know it's bad. Another person was shot last night. And I'm not, I'm not going to recount all the reasons you're tired. We, we all know what they are. We all know why we're exhausted. We all know, you know. How many of you have had to go back to your car to get your mask? You know what I mean? It's just exhausting. Exhausting. Pa- pastors, I'm talking to pastor friends, and they're, just, they're exhausted. They said, you know, my people are mad at me because they won't come to church because they have to wear a mask. People are mad at me. Because they come to church and somebody takes off their mask. They said, I, I'm just wrong, whatever I do. It's exhausting time to live for all of us. Not, I'm not just uh, saying pastors have it hard. We're all tired. Uh, are things bad, though? They're, they're worse than you think. Because the Bible says the devil goes about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. There is a dark force, and I know some of you, this is too weird for you. And you don't have to believe it. But I believe it. And I've seen it happen. I believe there's a dark force that's trying to take you out. Take your family out. Take your kids out permanently. The Bible, that word, that word uh, uh, devour, that means devastate, swallow, engulf, and destroy. Eat up and consume. So don't be smug and unconcerned about your situation We need to face it. We need to become alert to it. And we need to reach out for help. 
for what's going on in our souls. Years ago, early, early in my ministry life, I got the opportunity to go on a, uh, to be a chaplain on a Caribbean cruise, 14-day Caribbean cruise. It's a tough job, but somebody's got to do it, right? <laughs> and uh, in fact, my, our dear friends, some of you remember Jim Rents. Jim Rents just passed away this past week, and he was the guy who hooked me up and got me in on that. You saw all those years ago. What a great man. For some of you remember, Jim used to preach here. And um, uh, I remember one day I'm, I'm in the, the common area there, and I met a bunch of college students, and they got talking about different things, and, and uh, they, they told me, you know, you know, Religion is a crutch. And they, a lot of other things. They thought I was pretty bizarre that I didn't want to party with them. And uh, that night at dinner, I'm sitting with Father McIntosh. Father Mac from Canada, from Nova Scotia. And we I would, I would have dinner together every night with, uh, with him and other staff on the ship. And I told Father Mac what they said, that they said religion is a crutch. He said, yeah, and it's a pretty darn good one. <laughs> <laughs> the psalmist David said in Psalm 61 2, from the ends of the earth I cry to you for help when my heart is overwhelmed lead me to the towering rock of safety in defining the word whelmed, overwhelmed and, you know, my first thought was well I never looked up the word whelmed if you can be overwhelmed what does it mean to be whelmed and one source said if a boat is whelmed, it means that waves are coming right up to the gunwales, the tip-top sides of the boat. And some water is coming into the boat. But when a boat is overwhelmed, water is just pouring over the sides and into the boat. Chronicle the conditions of our world that are taking us today, I believe, from being whelmed to overwhelmed. I can't think of an arena that I could mention personal relationships, I mean, some of you are losing friends over politics right now. You're having people who won't speak to you because you're either, you're either not woke enough or you're not God and country enough. You're something. And so people are, are walking away from one another because of who they're supporting for president. I mean, people will actually... Um, you have these conversations now. Oh, you're a, you're a that supporter. You're a that... That didn't used to even come up in conversation. So we're in a very exhausting time. Almost every conversation is exhausting. And here's what I want to tell you. Being tired inside isn't just because you're not positive enough. It's not just because you're a weakling. It's not just because you're inferior. It's not just necessarily because you're not a good enough Christian. Being tired inside is a physical and biological reality. Let me explain. Your brain, many people think your brain's a muscle. Your brain is not a muscle. Your brain is mostly made up of fat. You know, so if someone calls you a fathead, say, yeah, true. <laughs> your, brain, your, your brain is mostly fat, and it it's runs on glucose. It runs on this energy substance called glucose. And when you are stressed, when you, a lot of new information's coming at you, you're taking your SATs, <laughs> You're, you're, you're dealing with a lot of crises and a lot of difficult conversations. That glucose gets, de gets depleted and it raises um, uh, 
another chemical comes up called, I believe it's called adenosine triphosphate. Adenosine triphosphate. Some of you study biology, is that right? ATP is short for adenosine, adenosine triphosphate. 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 What? Tri oh, yeah, thank you. Right, we got our medical people straight in my pronunciation. I'll just call it ATP. <laughs> ATP, when, when your glucose gets depleted because you are stressed, ATP levels rise and it, it, it stops, it blocks the chemical dopamine. You know what dopamine is? It's the chemical that makes you feel good and that makes you feel positive. When you get good news, you get a shot of dopamine. When you do something that's pleasurable, you get a shot of dopamine. But when your brain gets exhausted, you are no longer able to have fun. Have you noticed? Have you noticed that we're losing our sense of humor in our culture? I say that comedians are the par are, are, are the are the parakeets in, in uh, the parakeets in the coal mine. Comedians are the parakeets in the coal mine. When people can no longer laugh at comedians and comedians are getting canceled, your culture is going to a place where we're too tired, too serious, too something. <laughs> Now, in fact, clinical psychologist Melanie Greenberg, author of The Stress-Proof Brain, said we are not wired to use the higher-order executive function all the time. Higher-order executive functions, what happens when you're engaged, she said, in a mentally strenuous task, having to keep a lot of plates spinning, or when a lot of complex decisions are coming at you and a lot of new information is coming at you all at once. See... We can't, we can't keep this up. We've got to take a step back. Now, here's what I find very interesting. I'm going to read a scripture to you in a minute. But I want you to get the context of the scripture. A lot of times we say, never been this bad before. Read the Bible. <laughs> you will find your story in the Bible. In fact, you'll find your story a lot worse, and you'll say, oh, thank God I live in 2020. <laughs> when Jesus walked on the earth, I believe just about all the dynamics that are happening right now were happening then. They had this, the Romans had collaborated with the Jewish leadership to keep the common people in Jerusalem under control. There were, there were zealots, you know, there were all kinds of ideology, ideological parties that were very big. There were zealots. These were, the zealots were that version of Antifa. They were the ones who would blow up Roman buildings because they wanted the oppression of Rome gone. So the zealots were the people... The, the zealots were the guys who were, who were protesting and burning things down. They had the zealots, and they had the, the Pharisees, and they had the Sadducees, and they had the Essenes. And if we had time, we would explain how they were all different, and you could get in trouble with any one of them at any one time. And not only that, you had Roman soldiers walking around, and a Roman soldier could command you to carry their pack 
a mile in any direction. And not only that, the Pharisees had taken like 350 laws of Moses and expanded it to 623 laws of Moses. And not only that, they had added some traditions and they had created what they called the oral law that they could just make up new rules all the time. They were so, so many rules, it was very hard to stay out of court. If anybody that runs a business today, you know it's very hard to stay out of trouble. Right? It's exhausting. Here's, and, and I wish I had 30 minutes to tell you about more about that culture. It, things were so, I mean, you know, let, let me just tell you this. And a, lot of people, a lot of people think that when Jesus got arrested, he got arrested with the Roman soldiers. There wasn't a Roman soldier in sight. Those guys were from the church that arrested Jesus. It was the temple policeman. Now, we got, we got a little security detail going here. We don't have any church policemen. They had church guards who could arrest you and beat you up. And with 613 laws, it was pretty tough not to get your head bashed in for doing something wrong. So, it was a tough, very tough time. So... So Jesus, the Bible says, the, no, no wonder the Bible says the common people heard the Lord gladly. <laughs> the people who weren't a part of any of those power structures, any of those political structures, Jesus was like a fresh drink of water. Amen. And I think you see where I'm going. I think you see where I'm going. In fact, I want to say something, and I meant to say it when I first started today, is I'm going to say some things in a moment that make it sound like, maybe make it sound like that I don't think Christians should ever be political or that I don't think we should ever get involved in any, any political movements. I, I do not think that. I mean, if it, in fact, Billy Graham says he regret, he said before he died that he regretted not marching with Martin Luther King. So, you know, some people, I've had people say to me, well, politics doesn't matter. Well, politics mattered in 1965 when they passed the Civil Rights Act. Politics mattered in, in 67 and 68 when they passed the Fair Housing Act. And, uh, and, uh, and there was another act that I can't remember, but it all, it all, it all related to justice for black Americans. So, so don't tell me politics don't matter. Don't tell me the voting doesn't matter because it matters. So I believe Christians need to participate in politics. In fact, we probably ought to be, more of us ought to be running for political office, probably. If, you know, really. Really, cause, cause, because not because, not because we, our kingdom is of this world, but because we are supposed to be the salt of the earth, and so we're, being, we're supposed to be permeating every part of culture. Amen? So, anything I'm going to say that's going to sound like I'm re saying you should never talk about politics, you should never, no, no, I'm not saying that. I just want you to know ahead of time. Into this weary, complex world steps Jesus, and he says, Listen this, listen this. Oh, I wish I had, I wish I had a, a couple hours here to talk about this. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, you did not dance. We sing a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he is a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say he is a glut, drunkard, glutton and a drunkard. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. 
Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you, and you, Capernaum, will be lifted to the heavens. No, you will go down to hell or Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Do you get in the picture? It was a, it was a complicated, oppressive culture. At the same time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is, for the, this is what you were pleased. All things have been committed to be by my Father, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and to those to whom the Son chose to reveal Him. Come to me. This is what I want to get to today. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Or, or weary, I'm sorry, I'm, going, I'm thinking King James. Come to you, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble, and you will find rest for your souls. Rest on the inside. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. See, at the, at the root of this weary world was the fact that it was an unrepentant world. It was an unrepentant world that wouldn't let go of its covenant with the serpent in Eden that said, we will be as gods knowing good and evil. We will tell you when you're doing good and evil, and we will be the one to execute punishment for you. We're not letting go of that. Into this mess... Jesus says to anyone who will listen, come to me. Come to me. Number one, come to Jesus with your worries. The other night I'm on a prayer walk. And I was grappling with God about a problem. Begging God for understanding. And I really felt like the Holy Spirit said to me in a moment, moment, quit asking for understanding. You want to have understanding so you can go and fix it. I don't want to give you understanding. I just want you to give it to me. I just want you to hand the problem to me. I am the Lord and I will take care of your problem. This one is not for you to understand or to fix. The simplicity of Jesus' problem is striking because there was no fourfold path to to peace like Buddhism offers. There was no five pillars of peace through submission that Islam teaches. There was no ten ways to recover, relieve your weariness, which we pragmatic, self-help-oriented, 21st century Americans love. No, there was none of that. There was simply, come to me. You ever ask somebody for directions before... before, uh, before we had GPS, you know, in those days, and you'd go to a strange place, you ask for directions, and it's happened to me many times because I'm really, can be really dense sometimes. And people would just look at me, finally, after trying to tell me to go down there and take a ride and I'd go to the gas station, they'd go, you know, follow me. They'd get in their car. <laughs> That's what Jesus is saying to you today. All of you who are tired and weary and exhausted. And you're trying to read the map. He said, put the map away. Follow me. Um, Jesus 
doesn't want our souls resting on the how and when. <laughs> Rather, he wants our souls resting on the surety that he will keep his promise. And he is going to give us the best to come. Come to me. Cast your own anxieties on me, for I care for you, he said in 1 Peter 5, 7. C.S. Lewis said, if you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing which has them. They are not a sort of prize which God could, if he chose, just hand out to anyone. They are a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. If you are close to it, the spray will wet you. If you are not, you will remain dry. Once a man is united to God, how could he not live forever? Once a man is separated from God, what can he do but wither and die? Augustine, who lived in the 4th and 5th century, wrote of having an eternal source of happiness. God is the only source, he said, to be found of any good things, but especially those who make a man good and those which will make him happy. Only from him do they come into a man and attach themselves to a man. Consequently, human beings flourish and are truly happy when they center their lives on God, the source of everything that is true, good, and beautiful. As to all created things, they too ought to be loved, but the only way to properly love them and fully and truly enjoy them is to love and enjoy them in God. You know, something happened to us, though. That was, that was in the 3rd or 4th century. And 4th um, or 5th century, rather. Uh, however, around the 18th century, there was a cultural shift. A different account of human flourishing emerged in the world, especially here in the West. It was connected with what scholars call anthropocentric, and I, I know I pronounced that right, anthropocentric shift. You know, anthropology is the study of man. So in other words, it was the gradual redirection of our interest from a transcendent God to human beings and our mundane human affairs. That's what it meant. In other words, the new human, humanism was born different from most ancient ethics of human nature. It makes no reference, it makes no reference to something higher. It makes, it's all about us. The gospel became all about our happiness and not about this awesome transcendent God who was in another realm that we were ascending to and we were going to God. We were not going to God anymore. That's what the author who wrote about that said. We were not going to God like we were before, but now we were demanding that God come down to us. Jesus said, I go away that you may come and be with me. We're, we're transcending the things of this world. The modern evangelical church has, has brought into faith as a formula to fix the material world. Do you hear what I said? Modern evangelical church has bought into faith as a formula to fix the material world. And, 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 and I, I wanted, that's why I said what I said about social uh, justice and change a while ago. We do need to be involved in social justice, social change for a variety of reasons, but that's a whole different sermon. That's a whole different message and why we need to be involved in social change sometimes. But that's a whole different message and a whole different thing. But we also, we also need to understand that it is not biblical that we're going to have the authority and the dominion to fix everything that's wrong in culture. Jesus did not say that day when he said, all those things about uh, Chorazin and, and those other cities. And he, when he talked about the unrepentant culture around him, he didn't say, I'm going to tell you how to fix it. 
I'm going to give you the faith formula that you can make the world a virtual Disney world that you get to live in. No, Jesus said, come unto me. I will give you rest. In the middle of an unrepentant culture, I will give you rest. I'm afraid what has happened to the church, it's, it's, uh, there was a writer back in the 70s, who wrote, uh, Ira Purgoff, who wrote a book called The Well in the Cathedral. It's a classic book. And he talks about an, an apocryphal place where there was a well. Everybody came from all around to drink from that well. And it was so famous and so desired. One day, they built a chapel on top of the well. And so people came, and they would sit in the chapel. And then, that was so popular, they built a cathedral on top of the well. And the well's way down in the basement, and everybody forgot about the well. And they were just worshiping at the cathedral. And I fear that's what's happened to even the evangelical church of America. Is that we've, well, we're not building cathedrals anymore, but, but we've, we've brought all uh, loads of technology and professional worship teams and, and preachers in skinny jeans like me, you know, and <laughs> like not me. And I'm afraid in some of our places we've stopped, even us, we forgot about the well. We forgot, oh, it's how good was the worship, how good was the sermon, how comfortable was the auditorium, how do we like what our church is doing about this or that or the other, how does that make us feel? We forgot about the well, which is Jesus, which is meeting, which is Jesus. He's down at the basement somewhere, but he says, no, it's not about coming to church. It's about coming to me. How do we come to Jesus? We come to him with our words. I, I love it because it's so easy. Jesus says, you can come to me. He said in Matthew 7, 7, ask and it will be given you. How do you come to Jesus? Well, there's two, two primary ways to come to Jesus. The first is to come to Jesus with your words. And if you don't think words matter, a lot of you stood at a place like area right this one day, and you said two little words that has totally changed your life. You said, I do. <laughs> words are the, what we make covenants with. That's what we make contracts with. The Bible says death and life are in the power of the tongue. So how do we come to Jesus? We come with their words. To, to, to illustrate the importance of this, Jesus would go up to obviously crippled people and infirm people and say, what would you like? John 5.5, 5, it says there's a man who had been invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned they had been in this condition for a long time, he asked, do you want to get well? He needed to say, Jesus, I want you to make me well. Some of you are two or three words from being in the presence of Jesus right now. Some of you are four or five words from being his brother in faith. Some of you are only two or three words from being a child of God in this house this morning. Amen? 
Matthew 12, 37, by our words will we, be, we will be justified, Jesus said, by our words will be condemned. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then there's the mother of all words of confession in Romans 10, 9, and 10. The word is near you, he said. He said the, the word is in your mouth and in your heart. It's the word of faith which we declare to you that if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised from the dead, you will be saved. Amen. There was a popular teaching that was really rampant through the body of Christ for years called positive confession that took this to an extreme. That you, According to this teaching, you have the very power of God's creative words with your words, so you better watch what you say. People who really are into that doctrine, they would, if you ever said, I have a cold, they would jump on you like ugly on an ape. Don't you say, I have a cold. You just, you just gave yourself a cold because you said, I have a cold. <laughs> it, it got pretty silly. But lost in, the, in, the, in the, that doctrine and lost in that, um, the, the era of that doctrine is that there really is power in our words. And there really is creative power in our confession. There, there, our, our words can lead us into hell, crippling anxiety. Or our words can lead us into Christ-exalting peace of mind. Simon Peter told everyone at Pentecost, Save yourself from this crooked and perverse generation. And, and they proceeded. You know what they proceeded to do? You know what, you know what that... Church proceeded to do, if you follow Acts chapter 2 down, you go to the other places in Acts. You know what the greatest feature of the early church was? Is they prayed constantly. They started talking to Jesus just like he was in the room. Every day. They prayed every day. The, here, here's what I want to say to you. We are called by God right now. To become an island of sanity and an ocean of insanity. That's the calling. The early church, the early church was surrounded by insanity. The, the Caesar had proclaimed that he was divine. You would walk down the street in, 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 in the Roman colonies, and the normal greeting was Caesar is Lord. And it was the Christian who would say, Jesus is Lord. The, the, there was a cult called the cult of Sibeli. The cult of Sibeli. You ever heard of the cult of Sibeli? The uh, cult of Sibeli was, the, it was, a, it was a goddess cult and, uh, of, of the divine mother. I don't know much about it, but I, I know one feature of it stood out to me when I read about it. Is um, men in particular would go and worship Sibeli. And they would get so worked up in their rituals, worshiping Sibeli, that they would castrate themselves. Now, I know you didn't want to hear that on Sunday morning. But I just want, I want you to know that you're not the first group of people to live in an insane culture. You're not the first people to live in a world that seemingly has lost its mind. And in that sea of insanity, the early church planted the flag of Christianity 
And they planted the blood-stained banner of Jesus Christ. They didn't, they didn't spend all their time trying to fix the culture, but they spent all their time preaching the gospel. <laughs> they spent all their time preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and they didn't join every movement, and they didn't join everything, but they began to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the world has been forever changed because they were willing to be an island of, of sanity in a sea of insanity. That's your calling today, friends. I love my country. I honor its leaders. I salute the flag. But I'm not going to conflate national loyalty with worshiping God and exalting Jesus. I believe in social justice. I will speak up if I see a black citizen being disrespected. And I will vote with progress for equality of opportunity as a priority. But I will not make group identity my religion. I am a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis said a man may have to die for his country, but no man must in any exclusive sense live for his country. He who surrenders himself without reservation to the temporal claims of a nation or a party or a class is rendering to Caesar, or that class, my words, that which of all things must emphatically belong to God himself. Finally, I say this today. Come to Jesus with your walk. Come to Jesus with your words. That's, that's prayer. That's crying out. I wish we could spend a whole ser sermon series on how to do that. We're going to in January. Learn how to pray. Practice prayer. Pray more than you've ever prayed before. Turn off the news. Take the hour of the evening that you normally spend watching the news now and go pray with that hour. I really challenge you to do that. I really challenge you to do that. But come to Jesus. See, Jesus says this odd thing. He said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. He says this in the context of a culture that people were acting like children and in which you're going to be wrong no matter what you do. Sound familiar? Matthew, let's go back to verse 16. What can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in a marketplace and calling out, we played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, you did not mourn. Now, what Jesus is talking about, you know, children play games about whatever they see. You know, when I was a kid, we went to church a lot, so a lot of our playtime, we played church. So, what did, what did the kids see in the first century? They saw funerals and they saw weddings in the, in the ancient culture. So when they'd get together and play, they'd play funeral, they'd play wedding. And you can just see when Jesus words, a bunch of kids saying, let's play wedding. And the other kid, no, I'm not playing wedding. I want to play funeral. <laughs> let's play funeral. No, we're going to play wedding. Jesus said, that's what the world, that's what the culture is like. You're not going to play my game. You're not going to say what I'm telling you to say. You just don't get it. You just don't get it. Jesus said, come to me. Oh, hallelujah. <laughs> this is real. This is more real than any political party. This is more real than any social movement. 
This is, more, this is the most real thing you will ever experience. Because Jesus rose from the dead. And he's coming back again. Amen. Now, let me finish. Here, let me take a couple more minutes. Let me finish because I need to explain this. What was Jesus saying when he said, take my yoke? Because that's an odd thing to say. Come to you who are weary. Let me put this yoke on you. Well, first of all, he says, take my yoke. He's picturing a double yoke. So he's going to be, right? You're going to be partnering with Jesus. Jesus was saying, I'm not playing games like those people in the world. I have work for you. I have work for you and I to do together. That's part of walking with me. That's part of coming to me is you and I are going to be partners in doing something in the world. Secondly, he's saying the task I have for you is going to be energizing and motivating. And it's not going to be full of conflict and tension. I mean, everybody knows Sherry and how hard she works. She's up at 3.30 this morning researching apartments in Boston for room in the city. You think, you, you think she hated doing that? No. She loved doing that. She is energized. She's on, she, her hair's on fire for that. I'm telling you, if you will commit your walk to Jesus... He will set you on fire for something that will, be, that will be energize you and motivate you because it will be about bringing life and hope and joy and forgiveness to other people. It will not be about forcing them to your political beliefs. I have no problem with political beliefs. I have no problem with arguing. I will argue with you on political beliefs. You want to argue? Come on. I'll argue with you. But it's not my life. Jesus, when Christ, who is your life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory, the Bible says. Christ is your life. The easy yoke and the light burden is the welcoming of living under the constant gentle pressure of his presence. You will not be crushed to powder by the weight of his glory. You'll be strengthened by it. Jesus knows how much pressure you need to motivate you without crippling you. The world doesn't know that. The world around us knows nothing of that kind of balance and nuance. Love the world, but in your allegiance and surrender, come to Jesus and recover from being tired inside.